Well, in the 1960s, there was a man named Robert Greenleaf, who you may not have heard of, uh, but he did a few things that have probably affected your life today. Uh, he was working for AT&T in a very ambitious and cutthroat environment, and he was put off by that environment. This isn't the way business ought to be conducted. And so he did what very few people in that era did when they had corporate jobs that they were dissatisfied with. He quit. He left the company. And he said, there's a better way to lead people. Uh, So he began teaching on leadership, and he founded a whole philosophy, a whole model of leadership that endures and is taught in leadership schools and in churches today. And the basic idea was that leaders are in place to serve the people that they lead. They are not there to amass wealth and honor for themselves. They're not there to gain power and to enjoy the privileges of leadership. That's not the goal of leadership. No, he says the goal of leadership is to serve the people that you are leading. And so he coined the term that maybe you have said at some point in your life, servant leadership. He called forth a generation of servant leaders. And I hardly know a Christian who doesn't place a high value on the phrase servant leadership. And yet, For all 60 or so years that it has been taught, there has been one criticism brought to the school of thought called servant leadership uh, that we have not really been able to give a good answer to. Uh, And that criticism has been this. Well, that sounds nice, but what actually is servant leadership? What does it look like? What are you actually telling leaders to do? Is a servant leader a pastor who makes sure he goes last in line at the potluck? Is that enough to be a servant leader? First should be last. Is that enough? Uh, Does it mean that if you're the servant and the people are the leaders, you have to do everything the the people tell you to do? What does it actually look like on the ground to lead people by serving them? It's always been tough to give a really good concrete answer of here is what we're actually saying when we talk about servant leadership. Well, Greenleaf may have coined the term, but he wasn't the first to say that the leaders among us must be our servants. That was actually said by Jesus, and Jesus was Greenleaf's inspiration, his very words there as he said it. Jesus says to his disciples as they are fighting and clamoring for power, uh, now among the worldly leaders around you, they lord it over you as they fight for power, but it must not be so with you. For you, for my disciples, he says, the greatest among you must be your servant. The one who wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be your slave as he works for you today. Jesus didn't just say that. He gave us a picture of what it looks like. And he even said right after that, even as the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what we're going to look at today is a prophecy of Jesus coming that tells us what his leadership style was like, or more particularly, what it was not like, which then Matthew, the gospel writer, will later use and will paint a picture of Jesus giving this example of just what a leader who cares for the people that follow him will do and what he will not do. And so what we have before us then is a very concrete picture of some leadership values that are very different from what we are taught to do by the world, but very much at the heart of Jesus Christ. We're going to start in Isaiah 42 this morning, reading verses 1 through 4, same verses we looked at last week, and then we'll flip over throughout the sermon to Matthew 12, where he quotes this text in its entirety. Let's look first to Isaiah 42. The prophet says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, 
My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a picture of the type of leader that Jesus is not. And through them, the Lord warns us against three common pitfalls that both Christians and non-Christians fall into as we seek to gain influence in the world, as we seek to get ahead in the world, and as we seek sometimes to lead others as we are given positions of leadership in the world. Now, this is the same text we looked at last week. Last week, we focused on verses 1 and 4, which help us to understand just what justice is. You saw that word justice three times there, uh, to a people who are very confused about what justice was, and it also helped us to see where to look for it, right? So if you're interested today in justice, if you want to see justice brought to the world, I recommend you go back and listen to last week's sermon on the podcast or on our YouTube channel, where you can learn quite a bit about where Christians are called to look, who will bring justice to the world. Today, we zoom in on verses 2 and 3, where we see these three particular leadership moves that Jesus does not do because he abhors them. These are three common strategies in the leadership world that Jesus says, I want nothing to do with these, and I want my followers to have nothing to do with them as well. Now, Isaiah 42 predicts that Jesus will come and be like this. Matthew 12 picks up where Isaiah left off and says, here's what it looks like when Jesus does these things. And then he quotes this very text. So we're going to be flipping back and forth between Isaiah uh, 42 and Matthew 12 quite a lot today. Throughout history, there are several just common moves you see that the great leaders, the rulers of empires, the people who got their way to the top, very common ways that they got there. Jesus takes that playbook And he just throws it out. And he says, I have a different way of doing things. And we're going to see just three particular things that he does not do. The first two come from verse 2, which we'll read together here. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. The general picture here is he's not a loud mouth, right? You might think of Lucy on Charlie Brown and the way she acted. Right? He's not like that. That's not Jesus' personality. And he's bringing out two qualities that Jesus doesn't fall into. The first one is quarrelsomeness. Jesus is not a quarrelsome leader, and he does not gain influence by quarreling with other people. Uh, now, we see this first in verse 2 here when it says he will not cry aloud. Those words, cry aloud, uh, translate a, a Hebrew term that has a very broad range of meaning. It can refer to a revolutionary speaker standing on a box in the street, calling out a crowd to come and listen to him, and we're going to go overthrow the government next, right? It's not like a revolutionary type. It can refer to somebody who just is kind of a loud mouth and talks too much and talks too loud, or it can refer to a quarrelsome person, right? That's a particular kind of loud mouth, isn't it? They talk loud all the time, and they are always picking fights, uh, that's a good way to render it. And one way we can know that comes when we flip to Matthew 12. Flip over to Matthew 12 with me, if you would. Now we're going to flip back, so, so keep, a, keep a mark in Isaiah. 
Now, when Matthew quotes this passage, he translates it, he has it translated into Greek. He uses a Greek translation, and it looks a little different to us because it's gone from Hebrew to Greek to English rather than from Hebrew to English. And you're going to notice one difference here in what he has as verse 19. It says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. So Matthew chooses to translate it quarrel. That's the angle that he takes it from. So there's one indicator that the type of loudmouth that Jesus is not is a quarrelsome, loudmouthed person. But we have a stronger reason to see it than that, and that's the whole story that is being told in Matthew 12, in which Jesus shows himself to not be a quarrelsome person. Let's walk through the story together. In verse 2, after Jesus' disciples have plucked some grain and eaten it on the Sabbath, The Pharisees are there, and they pounce on him, right? They see the disciples doing one thing that is against their ways, and boom, they pounce. They're ready to pick a fight. And they say to him, uh, when the Pharisees saw it, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, what are they doing? They're picking a fight, right? They're ready, right? They're following him around. Once they see them do one thing they can criticize, boom, they're pouncing on him. And Jesus, with just a word, just whoop, puts that fight right out, shuts him down, doesn't make a scene out of it, just shuts him down, and that's the end of that. Well, in verse 10, they're not satisfied. They come to him again, and they want to ask him a question to trap him. The man was there with a withered hand, and they ask him, is it lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath? And they ask this, it says, so that they might accuse him. All right, so here they are trying to pick another fight, right? Jesus does the same thing again with just a sentence. Whoop, shuts that one down, and that one is over with. So, so far, Jesus has demonstrated two things. One, when fights come to him, he doesn't go in swinging and say, oh, y'all finally took the bait. I am ready. Let's have the big throwdown right now, right? No, he just kind of shuts things down, and it's over with. That's one thing he shows. The other thing he shows is that he can win these fights whenever he wants to, right? If you dig in there and you see the, the rhetoric, the logic, he's, man, he just shuts them down so fast. So here is someone who has the ability to win any argument that he wants to. Any fight that comes to him, he can just, boom, put himself on top whenever he wants. And he is choosing to just end the conflicts quickly and keep going with what he was doing, which was healing people and preaching. Well, then in verse 14, we see that the Pharisees go out and they conspire against him how to destroy him. So they go out to plot their next move so that they can come back and the big showdown can happen. So big showdown's coming. Here's the chance for Jesus to rise up and just thump them forever, right? I mean, big throwdown, about to happen. What does he do? Well, that's when verse 15 makes it interesting. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He just avoids the fight completely that he knows he's going to win if he has it. So here's one who could win any fight he wants to, who has fights coming to him and could very easily use this to build his platform, but he just isn't quarrelsome. And so he just leaves the area and just kind of escorts himself out of there. And then Isaiah in verse, or sorry, Matthew in verse 17 says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah. Part of that prophecy, verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. He is not a quarrelsome person. That is not a quality that Jesus bears. So Matthew's using this to show that Jesus was not a quarrelsome leader and was not a quarrelsome person.
That means for us that quarrelsomeness has no place in the Christian life and has no place in our contributions to the public square or in our contributions to conversations about politics or in Christian leadership. One thing we should not be marked by is quarrelsomeness. James tells us to be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to anger. The Proverbs say that a fool will always be quarreling and even warns us not to make friends with a quarrelsome person because we might learn his ways and become quarrelsome ourselves. First Corinthians says that love is not easily offended and does not quarrel. Christians are given control over our tongues by the Spirit of God. We are made new, and we become a peaceful and not quarrelsome people. Now, that changes the game in how we engage leadership and politics, doesn't it? Because we know some truths, right? We've got some stuff in the Bible here that would really thump a lot of what you hear out there, wouldn't it? And well, in right occasions, we can be like Jesus and answer objections in ways that are winsome. But what we don't do is go out looking for fights, salivating, saying, I can't wait till they make one more mistake and I am going to pounce on them, right? No, because quarrelsomeness is not a Christian virtue and is not a quality that our Lord Jesus bore. Now, that is very different from how the world gains influence. If you want to get on top, one of the ways to get on top is to pick fights and be quarrelsome. If you want to run for public office, one of the tried and true strategies is to find a foe, pick a fight with that foe, position yourself as the one that will defend everybody from that big bad guy, and then get everybody to vote for you so that you will rescue them from the big bad guy, right? If you want to, let's say you're not on Twitter, which good for you, I'm not on Twitter either, but if you're not and and you're sitting there thinking, man, I would love to have 10,000 Twitter followers by the end of the year. One of the best strategies to do that is to make a Twitter account and go pick fights on Twitter. If you want people to follow you and listen to you on Twitter, just just find anybody you disagree with and just flame them over. People will say, ooh, he got burned. I'm going to follow that guy, right? You can build up a mass following just being quarrelsome online. This is an effective strategy in the world to gain influence and to gain power. And I got to say, down at the convention, even this last week, I witnessed men who call themselves men of God using quarrelsomeness and fight picking to try to get themselves into elected office and power. It's not, the church is not immune from it as well. It's all over politics. It's all over any kind of elected office, all over social media. A strong strategy in many people's eyes is picking fights and being quarrelsome in order to gain power. Jesus says, not so with you, my disciples, right? Make it your ambition, he says, to live a peaceful, quiet, and godly lifestyle, right? Because quarrelsomeness must be far from a Christian, Now, if I say that, I need to confront something that some people say, and you may have heard. Um, Have you ever seen someone do something or say something quarrelsome and then say, well, Jesus turned over tables in the temple and I'm going to fight too, right? Have you ever heard that argument? Uh, Well, I need to confront that real fast because it's one thing to try to justify sinful quarrelsomeness. It's another thing to paint a false picture of Jesus to justify doing it. And so I got to go right after that one this morning. So let me me just talk a little bit about that. So it is true that Jesus went up the hill, uh, at least on Holy Week, maybe another time if John is talking about a separate time from Matthew. Uh, He went up the hill, went in the temple, found money changers and corrupt people there, defiling the temple 
temple with their corruption. Uh, he fashioned a whip, tipped over their tables, and chased them out. Right? Now, the very next thing he did was went and found blind and crippled people and took them into the temple in compassion. So this is obviously not angry Jesus doing this, but usually people skip over that part of the story. So anyway, he does drive them out. Right? The point of this is not that Jesus has an angry side or that Jesus is a jerk. The point of that is that it's his house. Now, if your parents are alive and you go to your father's house and you walk in your father's house and there are th- you found thieves, real thieves in your father's house, and not only are they stealing things from your father's house, they are doing abominable things, truly defiling your parents' house. What Jesus' actions there give you permission to do is brandish a weapon and chase the thieves out of your literal father's house. Just don't break any laws when you do it, okay? But this is rights to defend your own property. This is Jesus saying, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Yes, zeal for your parents' house can consume you if people break into your parents' house as well. This does not give you license to pick fights, to be quarrelsome, to act with an edge when you call people out online. No, that kind of conduct is far from the Christian life because it's far from our master, Jesus Christ. So Christians should be people of great zeal. We should have great zeal for the things of God, for, for our father's houses, for for our Father God's house for Jesus, but we cannot step over the line and in our zeal become a quarrelsome people. These are two different things that can sometimes sound very similar. So there's our first one. Jesus is not quarrelsome. This is not a quality he bears, nor a quality that his people should bear. Second one comes from the same set of verses, the same image of a loudmouth in the streets, crying out, making his voice heard in the streets. And that is self-promotion. Jesus was not a self-promoter. This is in contrast, Isaiah paints that picture in contrast with the leaders of the day. This is the age of empires. So one minute the Assyrian Empire is coming through, conquering everything. And then, you know, if you live long enough, then you get to see the Babylonian Empire come through and conquer whatever land you live in. And then if your kids live long enough, they see the Persian Empire come through and conquer everything. And whenever a new empire comes in, they'll parade the new ruler through the streets with great pomp and circumstance. And basically the whole point of the parade is look how awesome I am, right? I've got all these heralds declaring my greatness, and here I am on my fantastic horse that's beautifully braided. Hear ye, hear ye, I am awesome, right? That's basically the point of these parades that would come through. That's the image that's being confronted here when Jesus says he won't cry aloud in the street like this. He won't walk through the streets talking about how great he is because he's not self-centered and he's not a self-promoter. Matthew brings out the same qualities in him in a very different way. Uh, Let's continue that story in Matthew. So in verse 15, Jesus was aware of the Pharisees' plot and the incoming battle, so he withdrew from there because it wasn't quarrelsome. And the next thing that happens is that there are many people who need healing, and they follow him, so he can't even get alone, right? And he heals all these people. So we're talking like mass healing. It says healed them all. So who knows how many people it is. And then he does the most interesting thing in verse 16. He ordered them not to make it known. Isn't that strange? He heals mass people. Just a huge crowd healed. Don't tell anybody. All right. Is that not the opposite 
of self-promotion. Right? Is this not the opposite of the Instagram influencer who is like, all right, now who has the best foot? You have the, okay, you're going to take the picture. Okay, you man with the withered hand, like hold your hand just right. Let's get the camera angle just right. Make sure this thing gets broadcast out to the world and everybody sees me healing this person and doing this great thing. No, Jesus does the exact opposite. He says, no, I'm not broadcasting my good deeds. He says, I'm, just don't even tell anybody what I have done for you. And Matthew says, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet in today's text. Here's a man who is not an any way a self-promoter. Can you imagine the following that he could have built if he just played to his supernatural skills that he had? If he just used his powers to heal, his powers to win arguments, I mean, he was God, he could do whatever he wanted to, right? What a show he could put on, what a crowd he could gather, how he could have had every great thing about him broadcast to the ends of the earth immediately if he had just been a bit more showy about some of this stuff. But that's not who he is. That's not the kind of leader that he is. He's not a self-promoter. No, in reality, they try to make him king at one point, and he escapes so that they don't make him king. And then when he finally does come into Jerusalem in his kind of parade and outing as Israel's do king. He comes in on the colt of a donkey that can barely hold him up and makes him look silly and within a week has gotten himself killed. That's, that's the humility of our Savior, the very opposite of a self-promoter. So this is the way that worldly rulers gain power, right? Have you seen the way, the way the CCP in China just controls the state media? And there's one big message that the state media in China says, which is your leaders are awesome. Follow your leaders, right? That's the whole point of the Chinese state media. This is done all around the world in many places. Leaders rise to power and they maintain power by projecting an image of their greatness to everybody. And Jesus says that that's not how I operate. No, I, I'm, I'm not a self-promoter. I don't tell everybody how great I am. Other people do that for me. As the Proverbs say, let another praise you and not you yourself. Or as James says, where there is selfish ambition and jealousy, that is the desire to to get yourself out there that way, that leads to disorder and every vile practice leads to conduct. As Jeremiah says, let the wise not boast in his wisdom and the rich not boast in his riches and the powerful not boast in his power, but let him who boasts, boast in this. What is it? That he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. Or as Paul lists his resume of how great a man he could have been and says, I count all of that as trash and sewage compared to the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. No, no, Jesus is not a boastful one in himself, and we do not boast in ourselves, but we boast in him. That's what he calls us to do. So that means that Christians and Christian leaders have no place for boastfulness in our lives. He was the most glorious person who ever lives, and he reigns on the throne even now, and this group has even gathered to worship him. Is anybody more worthy of being boastful and exuberant about himself when he walked the streets on earth. But he just isn't boastful. It just isn't who he is or what he does. That says something about the very careful image management that a lot of us do on social media, right? Making sure that we look just perfect and awesome. 
Uh, says something about the humble brags that some of us put out there, right? Like, I'm so humbled to have been honored with such and such a thing. And the real purpose of the post is that everybody knows that a great thing happened to you in your career. This is, confronts some of our habits of self-promotion that happen online and in real life right now. So there's the second worldly tactic that Jesus doesn't use, self-promotion. All right, let's look at the third one, which comes from verse 3. The third tactic he doesn't use is crushing the weak, by the way. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So we have two pictures here. A bruised reed and a candle that's about to go out. Uh, A reed is uh, those kind of grassy plants that grow near the water, and they're firmer than like the grass in your yard, or like some of us, the dandelions and clovers in our yard. They're firmer than that, right? But they're not as strong as like the wood of the pew that you're sitting on. They're like in between that. Uh, And so they were sometimes strong enough to use for construction or for, you know, having a pretend sword fight with or something. Uh, But they would get bruised. And when they got bruised, they weren't all that useful anymore. Sometimes they'd get wet there near the shore and kind of crumble on the side and fold like a straw and wouldn't be all that useful. Well, This image here is telling us that Jesus is unusual in that he could work with a reed that is bruised and damaged and somehow restore it and make it functional again. Another construction worker would pass that one over and say, I'll use the strong one, but he can go with the bruised one and not only make good use of it, but restore it and not break it. The other image we have is of a candle that is about to go out. You've probably worked with candles before, had a few in your house perhaps, and you know what it's like when it gets to just a glowing ember there and it's smoking, and if you do nothing, it's going to go out. If you move it, it's going to go out. Basically, really no other option, but it's just going to go out, right, no matter what you do. Well, somehow, Jesus touches that faintly burning wick, and its flame is back. He doesn't quench it, but he restores the one who is burnt out. And Matthew gives us profound pictures of that as well, right? You know the story by now. Uh, As he is withdrawn, many people follow him who need to be healed, right? And he's not a self-promoter, so he's not trying to get attention. But there he is with a large group of bruised reeds, of faintly burning wicks. And just with his touch or with his word, he's able to heal them. And This is the kind of Lord that we have. This is how he treats broken and hurting people. He is not like most of the worldly rulers that we have known who crush the weakest people. No, he he reaches with a special care to them and says, let let me restore you. Let, Let me make you new again. Now that speaks a word to those of you who are exhausted after the last year and a half, doesn't it? Some of you probably feel like faintly burning wicks, or some of you have endured some bruising in the last year, and you feel like a bruised reed. And I want you to see this quality in Jesus' character. When he sees a bruised reed, he is not the kind that breaks it. And when he sees a faintly burning wick, like I know some of you are, he is not the kind that quenches it. No, he is the kind that revives the flame of those who look to him. So, so I tell you, if that is you, if you're resonating with that image, look to him to bring revival and healing into your life. He may do it even right now as you ask him, but at the very least on the last day, he will raise your body from the dead and restore you forever with him. Look to that Jesus. 
This is a big contrast, though, with how earthly leaders rule. Uh, you can think of the examples we had in the 20th century. Uh, the Nazi party, for instance, taking anybody they deemed impure, anybody that was too weak to contribute to this perfect society they were trying to build, and just casting them away in a concentration camp, right? Just doing away with the weak ones, right? Get all the bruised reeds out of here, they would say, right? We need to build a society with our strongest people. Jesus is just the opposite. He's actually, those are the ones I came for. So let's just gather them all into my arms. Uh, This is so different from the spirit of communism in the early 20th century, which promised great things to the working class poor. And then over the course of a century, saw the death of a hundred million working class people. Just came up so empty on its promises. Jesus is so different. He has not one empty promise in his Bible. And to the weak who look to him, he reaches to them and he restores them. So there you have three tactics that worldly leaders will use all the time that Jesus will not. Quarrelsomeness, self-promotion, and crushing the weak. If those things are far from Jesus' character, then Christian, they must be far from your character as well. Last thing we'll look at today is, well, if that's not how he gains power, well, how does he I mean, he became king of the universe, right? How exactly did he get himself on the throne if it wasn't through all these tricks that the leaders around us use? And to that, we want to rewind and look back to verse 1. There's three words in verse 1 that answer that question for us. God says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. That is how Jesus sits on the throne. Because he, the chosen one of God, the son of God, God made man, is upheld by God. He has the name above all names because God the Father gave him the name above all names. And this is why he does not have to resort to worldly tactics when he is walking on earth because it is God that upholds him into the office that he has been given. And that's the golden puzzle piece, I think, that makes Jesus' leadership style make sense. He doesn't have to do all these conniving things that we do because he's not trying to grasp for power himself. He's got a father who is upholding him. He's filled with the spirit of God who will empower him for every ministry that he does. And that says something for Christian leadership as well. Uh, A Christian who serves or has the ambition to serve in leadership must look to God to uphold them. This means saying to the Lord, I will serve you in smallness if you would have me serve you as a small person. Or if you would put the burdens of greatness upon me, then I will serve you in greatness for as long as you uphold me in that kind of position. Then when you take me away from it, I will serve you in smallness and insignificance again. We have an example of this in the biblical character of Joseph. Uh, Many of you know the story of Joseph in Genesis who was reduced to slavery in Egypt and then reduced below that to, to imprisonment in Egypt. And all along the way, he just did faithfully whatever was put in front of him and God blessed whatever happened. And many of you know how the story ends, that Joseph, in a miracle of God's power, is lifted up suddenly from the dungeon to second in command in Egypt, where he saves most of the known world from a famine through a prophetic dream that he's able to interpret. So God had great things in store for Joseph, and God's plan for him, unlike everybody, was that he would serve the Lord in greatness, in high position. But never once do you see Joseph in his story sitting and plotting, okay, how am I going to get in power so that I can unlock God's destiny for me, right? Never is he doing this. No, he just takes what's in front of him, does it faithfully, and when the Lord puts him in high position, he serves there faithfully. 
This is a picture of Christian leadership too. Whatever he gives us, we're just going to do faithfully. And every once in a while, he elevates the Christian into high and lofty position. And when he does, you don't defend it with your life. No, you just serve faithfully until the Lord takes you out of it. That's because Christians must be content with a peaceful, a quiet, and a godly life, as the, as the scriptures tell us. This is a, an important part of following Jesus, being willing to serve him in smallness or in greatness. Contentment could be the word for it. So as we look at that this morning, I've talked a lot about what it means for the Christian life. The biggest take-home that we need to take, though, is, is can you see just how wonderful Jesus is? You've had bosses in your lives. You've had pastors. You've, many of you have, have me as pastor right now. You've had fathers in your lives. You have all sorts of leadership figures in your lives. Can you see that he is so much better than every single one of them? So much better than every world leader who has come in history. And for those of you that don't follow him, I wonder if you would at least admit that there has been no man on earth quite like this. Well, that's because there is no one like Jesus Christ. That's because he is worthy of all of your faith and all of your trust. There's nobody like him in history. He was God-made man. He was the perfect offering of God to cover for our sins. He is the one who is risen from the grave, who reigns on the throne in power. And if you can see in these details of his character how great he is, I wonder if you're willing to put all of your faith and all of your trust in this great one who has come for us. So that's my last call to you this morning. Place all of your faith in this Jesus who is gentle, who is lowly, who does not quench a burning wick and is not a loudmouth bully. Place your faith in this Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.